Good morning and welcome to episode 302 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus. I am Ben Lindbergh, joined by Sam Miller. How are you, Sam? Good, Ben. How are you? Okay. What's this? What's the stopwatch situation out there? I have one. Did they give it to you or did you have to buy one? Uh, I had one already. We had to provide our own. Can't just be. You had to provide your own. Can't just be. Did they recommend? There's no such thing as a free stopwatch. Did they recommend a particular model? No, they didn't. But I think when I bought mine, which was a while ago because I've used it for various articles, I think I asked Kevin and, and Jason if there was a particular brand to get. And I think I got the one yeah, that they. Yeah, so you, you got the. Uh, you got the AccuSplit, uh, the, uh, the Axe Pro. No, I don't know. Really? Mine, mine says Sportline. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I didn't ask them. I don't really remember. I feel like I, I would have asked them. The, there's one in particular that um, that they've I've seen them recommend that they recommended mm. that Goldstein recommended. And uh, when I went to buy it, uh, it said customers who bought this also bought. And it had all baseball prospectus books. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I don't know. It's, so I, it's a yeah. stopwatch. I mean, how different are they? There are some differences. You want one that won't break if you drop it, and you want one. Some people here have ones where you have to like hold a button down to clear it or reset it, and mine just has a, a different button that you press to reset it. But you know, it's a stopwatch. Goldstein said that it was uh, pretty much the unofficial official stopwatch of scouting because of the scout proof feature and i have not yet figured out what the scout proof feature <laughs> is I've, I've been using it for a couple months and so far as i can tell it starts and stops yeah mine <laughs> mine works that way it's it's i have no complaints all right uh what do you are, did you bring a topic you probably yeah, didn't bring a topic not really and, and i apologize okay. to everyone because i wish that i could get in depth on some playoff series and talk about the games but i'm i'm sitting here now watching braves dodgers and this is really the first baseball i've seen of any length today so next week i'll be home and i'll be watching every inning of some series and i'll be able to talk about it um before you start uh can you can you run quickly through the the little math you did at the beginning of your ALDS Game Three recap? Because I thought that was interesting. Did you? I did. Um. Okay. Yeah. Well, happily. What? Why don't you? I don't know. Why don't? Can you run through it? Uh, I can. Well, I can pull it up here. Base. I mean, basically, you you tried to figure out what percentage of the regular Miguel Cabrera Miguel Cabrera is right now. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess you you pulled Twitter, and the answers. So the answers for him ranged from one to four wins. As it, he's a he's a one to four warp player right now, with a and mean really of two. The, yeah, with a mean of two, and the the four was. I, I don't think anybody. I'm not sure anybody said three. Like it was it was almost all clustered around two. I got a lot of one point fives. It's interesting. And a lot of a lot of twos. And, uh, you know, a couple that were high enough that, um, that, yeah, the average was two. And the thing that I liked about this, the thing that was fitting about this, is that um, a reader named Neil Kendrick decided to actually try to find a good comp for Cabrera, historically using uh, the play index on baseball reference. And he actually found a a season that 
sort of feels like almost exactly like what Miguel Cabrera is right now. And mm-hmm. it was Toby Hera in 1979. Mm-hmm. And to- Toby Hera, he had a 389 on base percentage. And I believe in Miguel Cabrera's September when he was so, you know, he, he was terrible in September uh, as well. And I'm looking it up right now. But he had something like, like it. well, I'll, I'll just figure it out real quick if, mm-hmm. if you can wait. Sure. Uh, so, but it, I mean, it, he's basically a guy who can still get on base because he, he has some threat to him. And he still has some batting average, but virtually no, um, uh, no power. And so in September, he hit. 278, 395, 333. Mm-hmm. And so if you give him a little bit more credit than that and assume that, you know, all those will kind of regress to be a little bit more like each other, then Toby Harris' line in 1979, which was 279, 389, 444, feels pretty good. And that feels like a, a decent a decent guess for what Cabrera would hit right now if he had this body permanently. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hera that year was a third baseman, rated minus 30. Mm-hmm. Uh, by by our metrics and minus 23 by total zone and so uh like a legitimately like mouth droppingly awful a defensive third baseman which i would say i anticipate Cabrera to be until he gets healed mm-hmm. uh so so anyway the point being that toby Hera was worth 2.3 warp that year and so we actually got a pretty good answer assuming that we all think that's more or less what his production would be if he had to play physically like this forever mm-hmm. uh we got a we actually got a good proxy and it told us exactly how much that's worth so so you said that uh so you you started with the premise oh. that these are both 96 win true talent teams which yeah. uh the third order standings say that that the tigers are better than that their actual record says they're worse than that so you're just looking for some sort of uh common premise there uh so so if you assume that they have the same true talent and they would win 500 games each if they played a thousand times if you bump Cabrera down from the seven and a half win player he was to Toby Hera then you're saying that that turns this into a matchup between one 96 win team the A's and the Tigers which then become a 91 ish win team Uh, and so that is equivalent to giving Oakland home field advantage in every game roughly um which means that that they would win 53, 54% of the time instead of 50% of the time. Is that yeah. did I roughly summarize that right? Yeah, you did. And uh, yeah, you summarized it, uh, I would say, quite well. So. Um, and that's interesting. And then you also noted that, that the A's are pitching Cabrera like he's Toby Hara, or worse, like he's, like he's a pitcher or something. They're just pumping fastballs in there all of a sudden. Yeah. So uh, the uh, just out of curiosity, the if you if you do turn the Tigers from a 96 win team into a basically a 91 win team, um, uh, it basically gives the A's chances of winning one of the next two two games. It, it bumps them up from you know something like like 75 percent. Well, basically exactly 75 percent to like 78 or, or 79 percent. And does that seem like a big difference or a mm. little difference to you? Uh. I mean, I. Because in a, in a sense, it kind of makes Miguel Cabrera. I mean, it puts in perspective what even one player can do over two games, yeah. right? And it should. But also, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, and also, I mean, the fact is that the A's, even with Cabrera playing, are you know overwhelmingly likely to win at this point. Mm-hmm. They only need to win one out of two games. Uh, so if it were, 
you know, if it were three games in an even series, then the, the A's would probably the the, I, the gap would be bigger, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, obviously. Well, that that makes sense because you're not even mm-hmm. completely taking him away; you're just making him worse, and it's one player out of many players. Uh-huh. Anyway, yeah, it's. Uh, I guess it, it it feels a lot like watching Albert Pujols earlier this year, although mm-hmm. not not as bad. Um, not nearly as bad, actually. Mm-hmm. Watching Albert Pujols was was hard to watch. Remember, um, remember uh, when we had Zachary Levine on, and we talked about Miguel Cabrera's storylines, and one yeah. of the, one of the ones he asked us was, I guess, whether whether it would become a controversy late in the season if he played to try to chase the triple crown instead of resting to get ready for the playoffs. Has anyone? Yeah. Has anyone? I mean, he missed some time, obviously. Has anyone? Have you seen anyone suggest that that he should have rested more or anything? Um, I haven't, but he wasn't chasing a triple crown. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and he did rest. He sat, I think he sat maybe, maybe six games in September or maybe four, mm-hmm. uh, completely. So uh, he did rest. I haven't heard that. I, I do know that I was asked, uh, by a radio, by a radio crew, mm-hmm. a radio show, uh, just before the series started, how worried the Tigers should be about Miguel Cabrera. And I said, not at all. <laughs> So, there's that. <laughs> uh, okay, so what were you going to talk about? Uh, so, yeah, um, every year there's a three-day rest controversy mm-hmm. when a team in need of a win goes to their best pitcher but does it on three days rest. And uh, it seems to me that there are – it's a complicated math problem. Very. There, are a lot of, there are a lot of scenarios that you need to figure out. Um, but it seems to me that it's a universal truth that we don't give enough credit to how much worse guys are on three days rest than Mm -hmm. they are on four. Um, which makes me think that if, if these are hard decisions, even, even underestimating that, that, that gap, then they are probably almost all wrong decisions because we're probably not, we're not, um, you know, including that enough in in our own internal math. But, Mm -hmm. um, regardless, I mean, there are some cases where it probably makes sense. Uh, and I, I can be very easily persuaded that it made sense to start, Kershaw on three days rest, given the Dodgers roster um, and their schedule going forward and and a bunch of other things. Um, but I can also, I, I think I slightly feel like it was the wrong decision. In fact, I, I think I do feel like it was the wrong decision, but it, that's, that doesn't really matter. And he pitched great. So uh, whatever. But And if you do uh, want to go into the, the math, you can go look at, at MGL's blog again. When we were we were talking about how he wrote about Madden's decision, uh, he has yeah. also written about the Kershaw decision. His site, by the way, is baseballsolutions.wordpress.com, and he went through all the math and he concluded that it was basically a, a toss-up. At least if if Granky is if Granky would start Game Five instead of Nolasco, then yeah. then there's essentially no difference according to his math, which is better than my math. So. Yeah, but he yeah was he just looking at these two games? Yeah, uh, so then there's also you, you'd have to start the NLCS with Nolasco, I guess, and then uh-huh. and then go with Kershaw and Greinke. No, no, no. You start it with Ryu, and then you go. Mm. Okay. So, uh, it it basically doesn't it doesn't seem like it changes the rotation for the NLCS. It changes the order, but not how many starts everybody makes. Uh-huh. But then it could change the World Series if you go seven, because now you've got Kershaw starting a game seven in the NLCS. Um, and in the World Series, it actually might have an impact because even if you still get Kershaw his two starts, 
he's not available in the bullpen for Game Seven, as is sort of customary for your for your ace who's who's already made his two starts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a complicated series of events that would need to happen, but eventually it could catch up to them. Uh, but you know, Brandon McCarthy also talked about uh, how he worries about uh, the fatigue of the long season mm-hmm. catching up to Kershaw sooner. It, not in this game, but but later on. And I mean, there's a lot of factors. It, to me, this felt like the I uh, I also I ran the Dakota odds for it but Dakota doesn't know what doing it starting on three three days rest does to a pitcher so it wasn't mm-hmm. all that helpful but I got the sense that yeah the two over the two days it's essentially a push mm-hmm. um and so then you have to go to all the complicated stuff and I, if, if ever there was a, a a time I would like this decision it would probably be with with Kershaw this time so that mm-hmm. you know that maybe makes me feel like it's it's, it's totally defensible and, and maybe the right move anyway the the point is not that though okay uh my point is that this comes up every year mm-hmm. um and uh, every single year, we go through the same numbers about how guys on three days rest cumulatively over the last you know, 20 years have an ERA of some high number or over the last 10 years have an ERA of some high number. And we point out that that's a, that's a select group of pitchers who would be asked to do that. They're mm-hmm. usually guys that, you know, obviously you want to move up and they're usually guys who started game one or game two. So they're at the top of the rotation. And um, yeah, Jeff, you know, Jeff Sullivan looked up the numbers, right? And, and yeah, and so did Cameron, and so did uh, so did Rosenthal, and so I mean, you know, yeah. that's so it's it was like big six seven tenths of a run higher ERA for the short rest group, even though those are better pitchers. Yeah, and and it's a the numbers have been consistent. I mean, I I know this because I've been seeing the same numbers every year for five years because mm-hmm. this comes up every single postseason. There are about five short rest starts per year in in every postseason going back to 2000 mm-hmm. um and so i guess my question is if, if this is an inevitability and if if we're never if people are just ne- if managers are maybe maybe they are maybe they're pricing this in but if they're just never going to acknowledge the fact that the name pitcher isn't necessarily better when you change his rhythm um should teams that are particularly teams that have playoff aspirations do you think that they should start figuring out ways to get their pitchers maybe three or four starts a year on three days rest so that it is not a foreign concept? And, you know, you would have it, you would have them do it, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe they're winning a blowout and uh, you take them out after five innings, mm-hmm. 70 pitches, mm-hmm. and then you bring them back three days later and maybe you have them throw 70, 70 or 80. I mean, you, you don't, you don't just abuse them. You mm-hmm. don't just create, you know, more pitches for them to throw. But you get them used to um, a this this sort of short rest idea and the the recovery time in it, and b just being a little bit more uh, less rigid in in what you think. Because you also will hear that pitchers, uh, you know, have maybe have have taken too much time off, and that was actually something I wondered with Kershaw if he didn't pitch tonight tonight and they the Dodgers had won. Then he wouldn't have pitched. Uh, he would have had eight days rest, and you'll hear in cases like that, you'll hear somebody beforehand wonder whether he's, you know, had too much time off, whether mm-hmm. he, he lost sharpness or whatever. So, um, I wonder if it might actually be better for teams knowing that the postseason is is different, mm-hmm. and that you're you're going to ask pitchers to do different things, and knowing that that's particularly for teams that feel confident they're going to make the playoffs, that's the bulk of the value out of your season is going to be in that month. Whether they should just start mixing guys up a little bit more, um, so that it's not quite so rigid, but particularly getting them some experience 
every year with three days rest. Um, cause maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a mental thing, mm-hmm. uh, knowing that you're, you're going on three days rest and maybe having them do it a few times, um, will get them over the mental block. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. There, there could be something to that. And, and rotations used to be a little less rigid than they are now. I mean, every now and then teams will will skip a fifth starter or something if they have an off day and it makes sense. But for the most part, it's just one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five throughout the whole season. Whereas it once was the case that that teams would kind of rearrange their rotations on the fly a little bit. And if they thought that they matched up really well with a particular team some sort of platoon thing, then they might hold a, a starter back for that series or in a certain ballpark or just kind of play around with those things throughout the season. And and maybe that would accustom a starter to being used a little bit irregularly, I guess. I don't know. You could say that it wouldn't really mimic the, the playoff experience if you only did it after short starts. I mean, if you, if you took a guy out after five innings or something because you had a big lead and he'd only thrown 70 pitches, then maybe it wouldn't, wouldn't completely mimic the playoff experience because probably the the guy who's going to be starting on short rest in the playoffs would be coming off a, a full start also in the playoffs. Um, mm-hmm. But although, although with Kershaw, mm-hmm. uh, Kershaw threw 124 pitches in his last outing, yeah. but like the last 50 were totally unnecessary. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you, I, if so, I mean, that's a, that's an isolated example, but mm-hmm. you wonder if Mattingly would have, uh, if, if Mattingly had kind of thought that this is, this was a, a thing he was going to do and, and something that Kershaw was more used to, mm-hmm. whether he would have pulled Kershaw after, you know, 75, and maybe, then, but that's, that's not the standard situation. You're right. And then there's also the possibility that you would just be increasing risk by doing that. Like maybe I see what you're saying that that maybe it's mostly or partially a mental block and that if you got pitchers used to the idea of doing it during the regular season, it wouldn't be so unfamiliar during the playoffs. Um, but maybe because pitchers aren't trained to do that and they're not used to doing that and it it does increase stress on your arm, I would think, just to do something unfamiliar and change your routine, that if you did do that three to four times in a season – it's not enough times for the pitcher's arm to adjust to that kind of schedule, but it's more times than he would normally do it. And maybe each time you do it, you're increasing the risk of an injury or increasing the risk of fatigue or a dead arm period or something. And so maybe you wouldn't want to mess around with it unless you really had a comfortable lead. Um, And even if you did have a comfortable lead, you wouldn't want to do anything that would jeopardize that guy's availability in in the postseason so so it it, i can see the benefits of it but i guess it's not completely without some potential drawbacks yeah yeah fair enough yeah Uh, it just feels like there's two solutions to this problem one is to quit throwing guys on short rest mm -hmm. and expecting them to be great and the other is to prepare for it better and I don't know how to do the second one, mm-hmm. uh, but at least it seems like something that uh, is possible because we tried the first one and it didn't work. Uh-huh. Yeah, and there doesn't seem to really be a consensus among teams about whether it – there's no blanket policy about whether it makes sense. I, I guess I would say that 
Would you say that most times a team has the opportunity to do this with an established ace? It does this. Is that your say, s- say it again? Would you say, say again. Would you say that most times a team uh, with an established ace or something close to it has the opportunity to do this to start him on short rest in the playoffs? They do it. No. You would not. Yeah. So th- I, I I would not. I would say that it is a usually it is a combination of uh, well you, in this case. It was it was the Ricky and Alasco factor. Mm-hmm. Mo, you know, mo, most teams that make the playoffs uh, don't have a pitcher as bad as Ricky and Alasco making mm-hmm. uh, starting games for them. Uh, so it's either that, or more more commonly, it's the it's the down. You know, the the back against the wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would I would argue maybe fallacy that um, you know they they have to win this game and they can't put their hands in their in their fourth starter, and so they bump the guy up. And so uh, it's usually. I would say it's usually the the ace, but I'm not sure that. Um, uh, yeah, I, it's not the default though. And then there are cases where the pitcher is never like Cliffley, right? The Phillies would never start Cliffley on short rest because he'd never done it, and they just didn't want to, just didn't want to have him do it. In the, mm-hmm. Which maybe that would have been a case where it would have made sense to do it with him at some point, just so you could say it. He has done it at some point, and he didn't. He didn't collapse. Um, yeah. Well. Well. Yeah. Kershaw had never done it. Mm, um, okay. I, I believe. I think that's why I was thinking about this. Uh huh. Okay. Well, it's uh, it's sort of surprising that there's no consensus about it, but I guess teams have to think about it on an individual basis if they think that their starter is is built to handle it or not. Last year, it's interesting. Some of the pitchers who have done it, mm-hmm. uh, Lance Lynn did it last year. Uh-huh. Uh, Rick Porcello did it the year before. Hmm. Uh, let's see. Uh, AJ Burnett did it, <laughs> and of course, AJ Burnett is a great pitcher, or you know, a good pitcher, mm-hmm. but one who in the postseason has this reputation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jay Happ did it. <laughs> wow. Uh, in 2007, Shinming Wong did it, which probably actually was not laughable at mm-hmm. the time. Yeah. Uh, 2005, Paul Bird did it. 2005, Brandon Backey did it. Hmm. Let's see. I feel like there's a story there that I should probably <laughs> yeah. look into. Yeah, probably. Uh, okay, last thing I wanted to mention, just because I think we talked about it in the podcast, and sometimes I forget whether we talked about something or I just wrote about something, and I know I wrote about this, but when Manny Acta was fired the last time, did we talk about it? Uh, I think Backy was coming back on from from relief. I think back, uh, yeah, okay. it, it looks like Backy had actually just pitched in in relief, and that might be the case for one or more of the pitchers who I just mocked. Yeah, Backy had only thrown seven okay pitches in an inning of relief, so mm-hmm. much more. Um, all right, I wonder I wonder how much that's I wonder hmm, it's conceivable that the numbers that people are citing uh, are somewhat skewed by that because if you look on play reference uh, play index on baseball reference uh it lets you it lets you pick what the guy's role was in the game that he did second mm-hmm. but not what he did in the game he did first mm-hmm. and guys so it might be that there's guys like Backy who have done it who um are the opposite of the self-selected ace group mm. they are guys who are pitching on quote unquote short rest because they're relievers and suck mm-hmm that uh, sounds worth looking into. Maybe. All right. What uh, were you asking? So did we did we discuss Maniacta the, the last time he was let go? 
I, I wrote about it. Yeah. I know. You, yeah. yeah so I think we talked about, I don't know whether, whether we thought that if he were on a good team, he would succeed or, uh, you know, whether, whether his firing was a result of, of his performance or just kind of being on bad teams and taking those jobs and just taking the fall for losing a lot. And when I wrote about him, I, I kind of brought up some, some earlier managers who started off with terrible teams and had terrible records and then got fired and then caught on with, with a good team and established their reputation as a good manager. And I, like Casey Stengel was one I brought up who was the manager of, of some mediocre Brooklyn Dodgers teams and some pretty bad Boston Bees and Boston Braves teams and, and like a decade or so almost into his manager, managerial career, he was just a, I mean, he had a very, very poor lifetime record and then the Yankees hired him and he went on to win a bunch of World Series and become a, a Hall of Famer. So not that that's necessarily what's going to happen to ACTA, but I'm kind of pulling for him, you know, partially because of the the sabermetric thing and just the fact that he's been very open about embracing analysis and, and statistics. And I would like to see him get a chance to succeed with, with a good team. Um, and he is now interviewing reportedly with the Cubs and I hope he gets another chance. Um, just because I'd, I'd like to see him catch on with an up and coming team and, and then we'll really know whether whether he's a, a good manager or just someone who who kind of talks a, a good game or talks a game that's appealing to internet people. Um, so I'm looking forward to his his next chance and hope that it will come next season. So Backy and Hap <laughs> and Porcello all were uh, coming back from relief appearances. So uh, mm-hmm. they should be excluded from the sample. I don't know if they are in the numbers that you see cited, but they should be. But for what it's worth, those three guys who, as noted, were all in the bullpen to start the series because they weren't very good, uh, combined for a 6.43 ERA in their in their short rest starts, their so-called short rest starts. Hmm. Well, you should ask uh, Jeff or someone if he counted those guys. And if not, maybe you can maybe you can do a new group. Shame him? Shame him? <laughs> yes. Maybe I get shame him? Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Okay, so tomorrow is the Emails. email show. Yeah, so uh, we've gotten some, but we could use some more uh, at podcast at baseballprospectus.com, and we will be back tomorrow with that.